0: You are listening to Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast. Is our house falling down? You decide. (laughs) Today we're going to talk about the fall of the House of Usher, the recent Mike Flanagan Netflix series. Maybe some other Flanagan stuff. He's sort of been ruling things over there for a little while. Maybe some other things about Edgar Allan Poe and his adaptations. Who knows? This is Mark Linsenmeyer. I'm not at all bothered by the thumping that seems to be coming from under the floorboards. Don't let it worry you. I'm Al Baker, just definitely
1: not as good as the sum of my parts.
2: <laughs> I'm Sarah Lynn Breck, and I've got this really nice wine I'd like to show you in my basement, just a little further.
3: And my name is Lawrence Ware, and I think that Edgar Allan Poe is a wonderful narrative writer, but a terrible poet.
2: Comes out swinging. Jeez, Lawrence. <laughs>
0: So I guess that's the first question is Poe in the abstract. Is he worthy at this point? Is he still in vogue? Are people still? Oh, absolutely. No, no. Did Lovecraft take the mantle? Of course not. (laughs) No. No, Lovecraft
3: is incredibly racist, but no. Edgar Allan Poe is a really, really important writer. I think he's a really good narrative writer, but listening to the characters in Fall of the House of Usher look earnestly in the camera and recite the poetry of Edgar Allan Poe, that was very hard to deal with. Because it really drove home for me this guy is not a good poet, but the stories he tells, the way he tells them, top-notch. Really, really important writer. Really good writer.
1: Absolutely agree with you about the show, but I think it just shows what makes Edgar Allan Poe so good. And the show didn't quite understand. Well, they seem to understand in the first part of it, which is that Poe doesn't take himself too seriously. No, he doesn't. So He's not like a great Literary poet, he writes doggerel, but I think what Poe shows is that there's such a thing as good doggerel. And you're right; it was ridiculous when the show was trying to make the characters recite Poe in a way that was deep and meaningful, because Poe's supposed to be fun. And the show was at its best when it understood that Poe was supposed to be fun.
2: I agree. I think the show was having a lot more. Fun. It looked like it might have been a lot more fun to make than it was necessarily to watch. It was a big swing. It was definitely a big swing. That's a hard task to bring in all of these stories and poems. But I really love Poe as a poem. I think he is someone who is master at language. Every single word that he chooses, he chooses with care. Josh and I were just talking about the raven, actually. And just going over that first line of The Raven is a beautiful thing. But listening to people recite poetry in the show seemed a little bit ridiculous.
3: I'm sorry. I got to fight Sarah. We are already going to fight Sarah. Sarah, Poe is a really good poet if you are in high school. He's a really (laughs) good poet to learn his poetry because he's very rhymey, tiny kind of guy. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to say. He is wonderful to say. There's no formal rigor and really interesting. Come on, Sarah. Sarah, you are a writer. I need you to... Come on, Sarah.
2: Come on, Sarah. I am. I am a writer. Come on, Sarah. You like his poetry? I do like his poetry. I love his short stories, but I do like his His poetry. His short stories are great. His short stories are great. His poetry is so bad. Why do why do why do you say that? Why do you think it's bad? It's
3: very rhymey. There's nothing going on with the structure of the poems that he writes that's interesting. It's very base poetry. It's interesting subject matter. But him as a poet, as an innovator on the art,
1: he's nothing to write home about. It's like emo music. He's like poetry's version of emo music or like Fall Out Boy or something. It's good for what it is. He's not trying to be you know, John Donne or whoever. He's
2: not
3: trying to be Keats.
2: No. Yeah. He's not trying to be William Blake or something, but he's also, it's an extension of his stories. Like he does such a great job with language and mood and vibe. And, you know, he is the one writer who just looks at the self. There's nobody better than Poe at looking at the self. He stares right at himself in the mirror, just like William Wilson did. And there's nobody better at that than him.
3: He's really good at the subject. He's really good at the content. But at being a poet, because when I think about a poet, I think about more than just like the stuff that they're doing. I think about the formal structure. I think about what they're doing with language and whatnot. He is really good with at, at storytelling. He's good at short stories. He's good at telling stories, good at, at mood and evoking a feeling. But as a poet, he is... Fine. But right. poetry so the, is the, also fine.
2: questioning, sorry, one more thing, but <laughs>
3: <laughs> poetry
2: ahead. is also questioning who we are as human beings. And I think that's mm-hmm. essentially Poe. And he does that in The Raven. He does that in Annabelle Lee. He does that constantly over and over and over again. And I think he's, as you put it, Al, an emo po- poet. <laughs> but at the same time, it evokes something in the reader. There's a reason why we're still reading him
0: today. Yeah, just the role of the poetry was had in culture for a long damn time until recorded music really came around to replace that he does an equally good job in the raven establishing a mood there's a reason that he's just been memefied and that's what i think of this adaptation is just a collection of you remember this thing from uh, <laughs> high school do you remember you've heard this image of a, a pendulum right not a lot to actually do with the short story the pin in the pendulum but there's a pendulum involved and that's pretty much all you need, you know? So it's a, it's a (laughs) collection of images and the poetry did just as much to contribute to that with Anuel Lee and the Raven as the prose. So if that's all we want out of it is a mood. So we have a mood and then let me ask you specifically. So I just listened to the story, the fall of the house of Usher again, very little actually happens in that story. Very little. (laughs) Like, why would you (laughs) even want to adapt this? And I can see why if they decided to adapt it and to adapt it, into more than a movie, like, you'd have to do something like they did here. But, like, again, this is just a collection, it's a remix of a bunch of themes from Poe rather than an adaptation at all.
1: The core approach, I thought, was really smart. They did probably the best, well, I can't think of a better way to approach adapting Tales of Mystery and Imagination, which is what they set out to do. And you're right, the story, The fall of the House of Russia does not support anything like a series worth of TV, but what it does provide is a really good metaphorical hook to hang the show around. That's good. And that's they, a, that's they, good they ran with that's that really really, really, really well. And I thought some of the, like the Black Cat at that episode stood out to me as the one that was most like a one-for-one retelling of the actual story. A lot of the others, you're right. The show also did a really good job of rewarding very clever boys and girls who had done their homework in high school and remembered <laughs> the vague outline of the plot of some of these stories.
2: All these Easter eggs. I have to show you, I was able to get out my Norton, my old
1: Norton anthology.
2: Oh! Oh, crap. Look at that. I haven't seen that in years.
1: I know. My goodness. I know. All my notes are in
2: here.
1: Really? (laughs) What did you think about Poe when you were a student? She loved loved him. She loved loved him. him. I know she did. I know she did.
2: Yes, I did. (laughs) I did. (laughs) I think that,
3: that the fall of the House of Usher, I had forgotten what was going on in that story. So I went back and listened to well, I actually bought a, I forgot what I bought it. It had a whole bunch of Poe stuff in there. And it reminded me how little it was going on in that story. So, what M- Mike Flanagan did, and he tends to do this well in all of his stories, in all of his shows, is he found a really good, like, framework to kind of
2: put Exactly up,
3: And then he placed different things from Poe inside of it. He modified it a little bit. To be honest, I thought he was quite clever. I might be the highest of all of us on this show. I really enjoyed this show quite a bit. It's not as good as Midnight Mass, but it's right there for me, at least. But he does a pretty good job of, like modernizing what Poe is up to, bringing up to where we are now, and kind of playing with it and just having fun. I thought that the pit in the pendulum was really interesting. That Telltale Heart.
2: Telltale Heart is a, was my favorite, yeah.
3: That's an old story that I remember, and I remember being kind of creeped out by it. But this was a really interesting kind of spin on it. The Black Cat, I thought, was really interesting. Ingenious. I thought that this was quite good. I really enjoyed what Mike Flanagan was up to, and I'm kinda happy to see that he's playing with form like this and kind of pushing horror forward while at the same time remaining true to what Poe was all about.
2: I'd never seen anything by Mike Flanagan before Usher. Do you think this was a good really? introduction to his stuff? It kinda made me wanted to go back and
0: um, watch some it's, of his it's other stuff. It's pretty atypical. Most of his is heavier.
3: Oh, really? Uh, I don't know. Doctor Sleep is really, really good. It's really one of the best movies.
0: That's not his brainchild. That's it's just really it's good. Just... Well, it kind of. Come on, it kind well, of. Well, I guess this I, is this I, I, is the I, question that he's he's well known for doing yeah. these adaptations, and so yeah. he reflects he is. the mood generally of what the original was. This one purposefully was more campy, more you're cheering for the deaths, more comical. Whereas true, Midnight true, Mass, true, the other true. one that I watched just in preparation for this, is it's very different. Like there's different. like some real, actually pretty good theological discussion and a lot of like yeah, it's it's a meditation. I'm yeah. I committed you know a drunk driving thing. This is this is the premise of the whole thing, and now my life is shit. And so like just starting in that place and taking it really seriously.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. I mean, t- to be honest, Mike Flanagan is
3: very similar to Stephen King in many ways. He's very interested in similar themes. The pacing of his, I guess, TV shows is similar to Stephen King, although his movie's a little bit different. Like, if you want a Mike Flanagan primer, I would say, honestly, a Ouija Part Two, that's one of his films. It is so much better than it has any right to be. It is a surprisingly really good movie. I liked Hush quite a bit. I thought that was good. Gerald's Game. I didn't love it, but people tend to love that movie for some reason. That's on Netflix. Midnight Mass is really good. And also The Haunting of Hill House, the first of that's the Netflix, TV right? shows. Mm-hmm. That's on Netflix, That's on Netflix. That is really, really good. And that is scary. It is really mm-hmm. creepy because in The Haunting of Hill House, he has ghosts all over the frame, but they're all in the background to kind of give you the impression that ghosts are like haunting these people. Oh, my it's God. It's a really good film. It's a really creepy film. But it's so good, and the acting is top-notch. So Mike Flanagan is really one of the best horror filmmakers working right now. It's just that he made this pivot away from making films. The last film he made was, I believe, Dr. Sleep. And he made this pivot towards making these TV shows for Netflix. Now moving forward, he's going to make these TV shows for Amazon. But I hope he gets back to making films really soon.
2: With Usher, one thing that I wasn't loving about this was that it was just seemed like nobody except for the granddaughter was redeemable. It was. You're like rooting for all of these kills. And once you get what the framework of the story is going to look like, you kind of can predict, or at least from my watching experience, I could predict kind of everything that was going to happen just about. I don't know. I wondered what was the point of bringing in this Sackler-esque family to stand in as the ushers. Like, what was the point of all of that, do you think?
3: I mean, to be honest, I think that Mike Flanagan is really mad about what happened with the Purdue pharmaceutical company. And he's very upset with that family that's behind that. And he's very upset with all the wreckage that happened because of OxyContin. And so he's kind of doing this, like, wish fulfillment, like making them suffer. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what I think he was up to. Is that he was drawing on his anger and how frustrated so many people are that they're never going to have any kind of repercussions for the decisions that they made, and so he made them suffer on television. That might be just my reading of it, but that's kind of what I felt like he was doing.
1: I kind of thought well, one of the one of the places the series struggled was with making the conceit pay off at the end. So I kind of I kind of felt the same way as Sarah Lynn. It, it felt a little weird like time every single episode waiting for the kill. And if you kind of know the story that the episode is named after, you also kind of know what's going to happen. I really like that experience generally. I like it when a TV show or a movie is an adaptation and like telegraphs to you that it's going to be following some of the same themes or some of the same story. And then the fun for you is in seeing like how it does that, how it hits the beats, what it changes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time the show managed that quite well, but it's eight times over the course of a, a series. is a lot of times yeah. for that to have to carry the show. And I think the way they tied it all together with the, I guess, are we doing a spoiler alert? Spoiler alert. The Spoiler alert
3: moving forward. Spoiler alert moving forward. If you don't want to be spoiled about follow the House of Usher, please stop listening. Sorry. And go
0: watch and then but, come back. But let me just yeah. tell you that you shouldn't worry about spoilers because you it's not about, about that. Spoilers. It's like it constructs itself like this is a Shakespearean, and we're going to tell you right at the beginning these are all the characters that are going to die. So, yes. the but people might not want to know like how they die because like how they dies. die is, is the fun. But the thing, go ahead with give away what you were going to give away, Al. The
1: thing, the thing <laughs> yeah. I want to spoil is that it's I guess Satan who is behind the whole. I didn't read, read it that thing. way at all. Well, right? it's, well it's, it's, it's some kind somebody of
0: somebody who makes a deal for your soul. It's basically, an, you it's know. a Mephistophelian right?
1: Yeah, entity. I didn't read really it like that way at all. It is Mephistopheles. He's also adapted Faust as the the like meta-narrative.
3: I got the impression that that being... Now, this is a huge spoiler, actually, because this is not revealed until the very end. Because that being was not evil or anything. It was a fact of reality. It was just... So when... Uh, what's his name? He played like Luke Skywalker. What's his name? What's
2: Mark Hamill. Mark um, Hamill. Mark Hamill, yeah.
3: When Mark Hamill sat down with that being and talked to them... They just had a conversation, and when Mark Hamill made his decision, the being was like, "Okay, I respect that. You know, I'm gonna let you deal with that consequence of where
1: you are." It was like, "I'm going to get you," or anything like that. It, it was very matter of fact. That's why it's Satan and not death, because you don't get to say no to death. Like Satan offers you a deal, and you take it or let, not. Let me death let me make an straight, argument here. Like so maybe so maybe the, you're right. the maybe evil you're right. maybe you're that was done, done right.
0: the evil was done, is not the maliciousness which the being decided to kill some but not others, and you know was compassionate to the granddaughter in the manner of death and said, I would have been compassionate with you, but you're such a bastard that there is a less equality. The evil is in, I'm going to make this deal with you. So you get to do whatever you want. I'm giving you the ring of Gyges. And I know that probably that you're going to be able to wreak havoc on the world. So it's not like I'm just giving you your free will. It's no, I'm going to give you a consequence free. So... Really, the being is the one who's responsible for, you know, putting someone in a state of temptation that they know and apparently doing this repeatedly with rich people throughout history in a situation where they will they will do untold (laughs) damage upon the world.
2: And also she gives them a choice. Roderick seems like the most evil. I think he's even more evil than Madeline because he already has a kid at this point. Is he dense if he doesn't get what the terms are that You're ending your bloodline. Like that is it. The fact that he decide he agrees to that means he is the purest evil of them all. But I was listening to a podcast and somebody raised the question of whether this show is asking if evil is inherent as being part of a human being. Or if it's something external, if it's something that comes at us from the outside and tempts us, or is it a combo platter?
3: I read this as it being part of humanity and part of our, because for me, the real evil in this story is greed. Like that is greed and hubris. Maybe Al is kind of changing me here. I didn't read that being as the devil, because when I think of the devil, I think of like an evil being who's behind the scenes, manically thinking of how bad to get people. Maybe this is a version of the devil that's being presented. But the real evil of this is really the greed of, I guess, Roderick. Maybe his sister as well, but really Roderick. That's really what the greed is. That's really what the evil comes from. It's from his decisions. And everything that happens is a byproduct of what he decides. That's how I read the story. So that
2: was already within within him.
1: It was it was him. It was him. I think Sarah Limba's onto it when you said you brought up the idea of consequences, and it seems like Lawrence earlier you brought up the fact that this is clearly inspired by his anger at Purdue and the pharmaceutical industry generally, and it really makes sense that the main thing that he wants to take aim at is the idea of not just like people acting badly, but people acting badly, who have got themselves in a position where they can do so without consequences. That's brought up... Like the, oh,
2: Mar- yeah, Mark said that.
1: Right at the beginning of the show in the courtroom. Who's the prosecutor? I can't remember his name. He's, he's like, these people never have to face any consequences. And it comes up in a lot of the episodes. Like, Prospero's orgy is all about like consequence-free pleasure. and Yeah, it comes up over and over again. Consequence-free
0: until but I blackmail you about it.
1: Yes, exactly. But no consequences for him.
0: The prosecutor, Dupin... Which who is like the Sherlock Holmes sort of character? Yeah, which is a weird juxtaposition because he's not doing anything Sherlock Holmesy, or like he's not the Dupin character whatsoever. It's just a it's just an Easter egg name.
2: When in the past in the in 1979, he's able to go through and figure out what their lifestyle is by all of the hints that he sees, like you know the coffee and the honey on the floor and all that kind of stuff. He's able to, the crying baby, he's able to figure
0: out what their deal is.
3: And he's played by the great Carl Lumby, a wonderful, wonderful actor that I was really happy to see him in this role.
0: There are multiple aspects to Poe. He's of course, best known for this gloomy stuff and the Raven and House of Usher, but then throwing in, The DuPont stuff, which is really a separate genre. Like he is, you know, one of the creators of the first detective story, first
2: American detective
0: story. Yeah. And Arthur Pym, the name that the Mark Hamill character has, is referred to this. It's a very sort of proto, it's a high seas adventure story of somebody being, I don't know if you guys ever read this one. It's not very commonly experienced, but yeah, somebody, they refer to it like going to the Arctic and there's an issue and they end up eating each other. <laughs> Something that's very <laughs> out of genre for Poe. So feeling the need to like, we're at least going to refer to that. We're going to try to build it into the same Poe-verse here. Mm-hmm. It was an interesting choice.
2: What do you, do you think of the fact that Verna lets everyone basically be responsible for their own deaths? Like all of the kids be responsible in a way for their own deaths, except for Lenore at the very end. Hmm. Did you notice that?
3: I I didn't pick up on that at all.
0: That was the whole point, that she was the only one that was guiltless. And so she got a consolation, significant spoiler, but like a consolation prize of, I still have to kill you, but it won't be as nasty as everybody else. And in fact, I'll try to make you feel better about your life before I do.
2: But she doesn't actively kill each of the other kids, right? Like she... Basically lets them set themselves up for these gruesome deaths. And yes, she gives Lenore a much nicer death, but she is the one who puts her hand on her and, and she goes.
3: I didn't read much into that. I honestly didn't see much.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's really easy to pin causality on something which is like the end of a demonic pact. <laughs> like it, it, it was there. I I got stuck in a thinking loop when you brought you brought up that comment from the podcaster about like, whether the issue is about the idea that the TV shows is exploring, like whether the nature of evil is internal or or mm-hmm. external. One of the points of the show might be is that it just kind of doesn't matter. If you think about the original stories that Poe's telling as well, especially what it, the stories of his which end in people like going mad and usually dying, which is probably most of them. <laughs> One of the common themes is that there is always something real which is happening to the characters, or it feels in the story like these are real things that are happening. Mm-hmm. But these are also things which if those characters were to tell other people that those things had happened, they would sound insane. And like they're always, you know, sometimes they're found ranting at the end about these things that have happened. I think a similar kind of issue arises if we're talking about the internal or the external impetus for these characters' downfall. Because yes, it was Prospero's decision to hold a party and not thoroughly check everything. But he was also fated to die because of the bargain that had been struck. It's everybody's fault and nobody's fault. I don't think the stories are about who's at fault. I think they're about what it is to fall from grace, to
0: lose your place in the world yeah, all at once. I don't know. What are the stories about? I like the fact that for the party death that the father held himself legally responsible because he was, because like he set up the situation in which there were these chemicals there and they were stored illegally and blah, blah, blah. And I sort of wish that they just put a little more of the writing effort into trying to make that across the board. So he really could hold himself, not just responsible for, I don't know, talking in a bar of like, would you be willing to give? Like, that's just a bullshit session. I don't see that as like, and now sign this in blood. Like nobody would actually, if you were in that situation, you would not actually believe that you had made a real bargain. So in in some extent, even though, yes, it's his own greed, it's their own, the fact that they were willing to, in the abstract, not just say, of course I wouldn't do anything and let my kids get killed, you know, or my nephew's nieces Mm -hmm. get killed. But that's like a pretty minor thing. So that doesn't show their deep venality. It's what they actually do based on that. I don't know, man. If
3: if I'm in a bar... On New Year's Eve and a being says, sell your soul. I'm not fucking selling my soul, dog. Like, I'm just not doing it. And then once it's over, I realize, like, like, something supernatural happened. This is a conceit that happens in many stories that are adjacent to Edgar Allan Poe, where characters, like, make these kinds of deals. Mm -hmm. And I felt that that was very consistent with just, like, it's not playing by the rules of 2023 storytelling. It's playing by the rules of a different kind of storytelling. And it was very consistent with what those kind of stories would do. Like around the time Edgar Allan Poe was writing, there's a lot of stories like that of people selling their souls and whatnot. And kind of these kind of bargains that are happening. And that felt very consistent with the kind of story that, that he wanted to tell. But me personally, if I'm in a bar and some woman comes to me and is like, yo, would you be interesting to sell your soul for... All this money and all your kids would die one day. Fuck no. Get away from me. I don't care how drunk or high I am. I'm not going to agree to that bargain. And so I'm sorry. I hold Roderick to be very culpable in this. And though he's not directly responsible for all the deaths, he is indirectly responsible for all the deaths because he sets the conditions for them to have the money, for them to like, so for example, in the Telltale Heart, he gives her the money and he kind of gives her the ability to do what she's doing that he needs it for his own health reasons, but he kind of sets the stage for what happened. Mm-hmm. I think that he is culpable.
0: Yes. In all of these. Yeah, say, yes. Deep, so they Make it, make it clear though. by setting the kids against each other, both in general for its affection and in this specific situation of there's a yeah, mole among you and you got to figure out like that, that yeah. directly set up some of the deaths. The cat one. Not so much. It's more just the cab Not so much. You're right. About it's more cat. just the, the general, you know, just like the being said, you can be unrestrained and have no consequences. This was set up to, Hey, you'll be able to do whatever you want for your kids. You know, it's just reinforcing the point that we should all be familiar with is that if that means that you give your kids no consequences, then yeah, you might have a kid that is going to abuse drugs and die as a result. The cat one to a lesser extent because he,
1: he was only able to get the replacement cat because he had infinite resources. Mm-hmm. The show does feel the need, like right at the very end, to have Roderick Usher just sit in the middle of the frame and say, it is all my fault, and even if none of this had happened, I always knew that I was going to become powerful by murdering people. So, yeah, there isn't really any question that Roderick Usher is the bad guy.
2: No, and she also said at the end that it's not about selling your soul. She was like, that's child's play. It's about legacy. It's about you are ending your bloodline. And I thought the biggest gift that she gave Lenore at the end was telling her what her legacy was. And that is something that I think Roderick, I think, and Madeline were both hoping that they could buy with money.
1: Consequences, again, Is another kind of consequences. Whenever the show talks about consequences and uses the word consequences, it's like things that you need to avoid when you're trying to get away with venal behavior. But legacy is another kind of consequence,
2: right? Yeah, totally.
3: I want to talk a little bit about what I appreciated from this show, though. So one of the things that I really appreciated and it might have creeped you out if you noticed it, or you might have missed it completely. But oftentimes, whenever... Well, there's a couple of things, actually. First of all, one thing that you might not know, they had to change uh, Roderick, the actor who's playing Roderick, like m- in the middle of, of shooting the show. Yes. Uh, because there was all kinds of drama around another character, I'm not gonna get, another actor. I'm not going to get into the depths of that. Frank they had to change it and, anyway. Yeah. yeah. They had to change it midstream. So I thought they did a really admirable job of kind of reshooting everything around that because they had already started shooting and th- then they had to change it. So I thought that was really well done. But one of the things that I appreciate about the filmmaking is that whenever Roderick is sitting down with what's the character, uh, Carl Lumby, the black guy, what's his name? DuPont. Du- 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 when they were sitting down in that room and they were having conversations, oftentimes behind DuPont, there would be like ghosts behind him, mm-hmm. right? Moving around. It was really creepy. And I loved how it was incredibly creepy and really Halloween-inducing without being, like, jump scares all the time. Like, that's one thing that Mike Flanagan does a really good job of.
2: Yeah, it was super creepy. Creating
3: an atmosphere of dread and creepiness without jump scares. One of the things that I think that horror filmmakers have really kind of relied upon too much here recently are a whole bunch of jump scares. If you look at the really good... Horror films of the past, Halloween, The Exorcist, whatever it's all about dread, it's all about making things feel uncomfortable and unsettled, like the um like the shining, it's all about making you feel uncomfortable and unsettled. Mike Flanagan is really good at doing that without relying on... now there's a few jump scares, you no know, someone. There are plenty of jump
2: scares. Are you kidding?
0: It's it's one or two. A ghost appears right in front of you know, that kinda It's
3: not that many. It's not that many, not as many as it could have been. It's really good at creating like an atmosphere of dread, and I really appreciated what Mike Flanagan was up to with that.
1: Felt like the things that he was reveling in more than jump scares were gore and like gore moments. He it was very gory. It was much gorier than he knew. Those were very effective, but also felt really earned not gratuitous as you, you got like a couple of big ones every episode and it always felt needed. Yeah. And also over the top enough that, that it was still fun. Your mileage will vary though, because my girlfriend (laughs) did not, did not get on with the skin melting orgy. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah.
3: I thought that was fun.
2: (laughs) You know what though? Gold bug, the gold bug episode that, Death actually I thought was kind of spectacular with all the glass and there were some hints of William Wilson in there and that was really fun I not fun but you know Sure no it it's was supposed fun. to be fun it it's was a fun, fun. Show. it was pretty fun. spectacular Come on, Sarah
3: it was fun <laughs> but, like I'm not a big gore fan like so last night I watched two movies that I'm never going to watch again I watched a movie called All Hallows Eve on Shutter and I watched The Terrifier Part 1 on Shutter And those are like, All Hallows Eve introduces like this clown, creepy clown character. And the terrifier like really goes to a whole other place. And they have a lot of gore in those movies. And I didn't like that. I'm not a big gore fan. I didn't like that. But I think that Mike Flanagan is so restrained in how he does utilize gore that he cuts away. Like he'll show you a flash or something, but then he'll cut away. But then at times he'll let you to like linger on what happened, but it won't be over the top gratuitous gore. That's kind of what I appreciate. Mike Flanagan is really good at not going over the top, but at the same time giving you just a little bit that you need. Sarah, it's okay. You had fun. Enjoy yourself.
0: <laughs> the thing that did sort of worry me, I've complained on this podcast a number of times about the show American Horror Story, which, despite the fact that I've complained about it, I watched eight seasons of it. You know, a lot, a bunch of seasons of it. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, it was good enough. But I find it it is far more than it I is did. trashy. And I found Usher pretty damn close because, you know, it has a lot of characters acting poorly and taking drugs and this mixing, whereas most of the other Flanagan stuff really develops one idea. The one idea that they had to develop, which is this sort of, like, you've made a deal. I mean, that's not even in Poe, right? That's just, as you were saying, Lawrence, it's something that was of the time, devil at the crossroads or whatever. But, like, there's not a specific Poe story, I believe, that that even comes from. Not that I'm aware of, no. (laughs) I'm just wondering if I can see this as a a high point in art while at the same point seeing American Horror Story, which is a lot of similar, like one thing that was fun about this is seeing the same actors that were in Midnight Mass, that were in Haunting of Bly Manor in these different, Henry Thomas, who (laughs) played the kid from E.T., played a coke addict.
2: I know, I love that. That's hilarious. I I I mean,
3: (laughs) I I think American Horror Story they're intentionally gore. I'm like, Not gore. They're intentionally well, it's like, low gore is part of it. Yes, campy. campy. It is. But it's campy. It's intentionally low-brow. Like, it's not very sophisticated. That's kind of how... I think there may be two seasons of that show that I kind of felt was, like, high art-ish. But it's not trying to that. Mike Flanagan is trying to be high That's art That's
0: what I'm concerned. Like, did it actually work?
3: I think it did. I think Mike Flanagan's pretty good at this. Like, consistently, I didn't love... His Midnight Club show that came out last year. I didn't love that. But pretty consistently, Mike Flanagan is really good at telling compelling, highbrow, artistic horror tales. Uh-huh. Okay, so Hill House, top-notch. Bly Manor, it was a little slow for me, but it's really top-notch. Midnight Mass, by far the best. Midnight Club, didn't love it. It's a little kitty for me. And, this, and then there's this one. And his production design is always good. The effects that when he uses them, they're always good. The cinematography is always good. It's always top notch as far as the direction and the pacing and the acting. I think that this is leaps and bounds above what Ryan Murphy is doing with the American horror story and American horror stories. I really think so.
2: Totally I didn't think he was consistent in this series. I thought that sometimes it kind of veered into camp. I thought Mary McDonald was Kind of hilarious as Madeline, (laughs) and seemed to be playing a different character than the one who played her younger
0: self. Yeah, Yeah. you wouldn't just grow into (laughs) that accent. I didn't either. So long, it
1: took me so long long to figure out they were even supposed to be the same person. When I when
0: I hear about something like Frank Langella, like at least Frank Langella just looks like an old man who you would not recognize what he looked like young. Whereas Bruce Greenwood is a really good-looking old guy, and he doesn't look like. The young version of himself, sorry.
2: <laughs> right, no, he doesn't. But I also think that gothic is really hard tonally to get right on screen, right. you know? That kind of gloom and doom is tough not to kind of veer into camp sometimes.
1: So I think it would have done better to stick with the campier stuff that it started with the uh, that towards the beginning of the, the season because by the end, it seemed to me like the last three episodes got really into much darker kind of tonal territory. And one of the consequences of that was like at the very, very end when we had like the resurrected body of that character strangling Roderick Usher to death with the stones over her eyes, which is just absurd on the screen. I was laughing out loud. And it just was a really weird tone shift because it had been very, very worthy. I think that the worst thing in the show for me was when they had the speechifying at the end where they had several characters sit down and say, just in case you missed it, these are the underlying themes of the show that we've just been doing. For the- I <laughs> do hate when that happens. I do <laughs> hate when that happens. That yeah. was so unnecessary.
3: Of my I mean, but I do think that Sarah is on to something that gothic is really hard to do well. It's really hard to be consistent, especially over this long of a time. Like So I, I reminded like Crimson Peak, that film that came out a couple of years ago, has really good actors in it. Directed by Guillermo del Toro. And that's attempting to be like a gothic love tale. And the reason why that works is because it's two hours. This, you have many hours to fill, and it's really hard to keep that tone consistently. Now, I do think that he does a pretty good job of this, but it's not as good as Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass is, is on a whole other level. But this does a pretty good job of like being a little campy, having a little fun, because I was laughing as well with the woman with the stones over her eyes. I mean, I was laughing. I mean, I thought it was meant to be fun. I don't think it was supposed to be terrifying. So it's a little campy, but at the same time, he
1: tries to play with that gothic tone. I think he does a pretty good job. He did put it on hard mode for himself, though, because if the job is adapt Tales of Mystery and Imagination, you don't have to string them all together in a grand you don't. narrative. You, you could you have done it as yeah. an anthology show, and then it would have been much easier. Then you can have different tones for different episodes, if you like, and it doesn't feel weird. So maybe he just made it too hard for himself.
3: And, and as Sarah said, it was a big swing. He took a really big swing... You do something like this, you're not going to hit it out the park all the time. I'm really happy that he tried, though.
2: You know, me too. I was too. I was excited about watching the show and getting into it. And then also getting out my Norton anthology again was was really fun.
0: The tones worked overall for me. I wonder if essential to a gothic thing is that you actually put it in a gothic time period that I kind of had to think. It might be. That's a good point. And any flashbacking, it kind of makes it easier That flashing back to the 70s is not the same as flashing back to the 1870s, but yet you still have a sense of displacement. And so we're talking about the Haunting of Hill House or whatever. I know those also take place in present time, but since it's been a few years since I watched those, my memory is of here's an isolated place. Like all the other Mike Flanagan stuff, it's like here's an isolated place, a place out of time. So this was the first one that was like actively We're dealing with mass media. We're dealing with current events. We're dealing with all this stuff. We're bringing up Donald Trump. We're, you know, such that it just, it made it harder to sustain. I think that's what you're saying, Lawrence, is, you know, how do you do a gothic tone? Maybe don't have it in modern day. Or if you're going to have it in modern day, have it in a spooky castle that's on the edge of things. Don't make the house. I don't know. What did you guys think of that? Let's make it a a dilapidated suburban 1980s house, 70s house.
2: The house imagery in Poe has always stood in as the symbol of the self or of the mind. That's sort of typical. And so the fact that he is in follow the house of Usher story, he is literally sick and he's also spiritually sick. And I wish that Mike Flanagan had taken some of those themes because you can say that we have a sick society that says it's okay to have billionaires kind of run society. You know what I mean? Like you can actually stretch those kinds of themes that they were talking about in Andrew Jackson time and stretch them out to today. And I wish that he had kind of hit that a little bit harder, but there's more of a reflection of us in these stories than actually what we saw on the screen, because I, I was relieved. I didn't, I mean, I didn't relate to any of these characters. They were not particularly likable. And you could kind of pat yourself on the back, you know, as you would at the very end and saying, yeah, I'm just fine with my happy family and my partner. And, you know, as he was saying, my grandchildren and and I'm richer than anybody else, you know, and that's kind of what we were supposed to be saying to ourselves. But I didn't think that that ending in any way was, was earned because there was no sense of culpability from the beginning, no sense of communal culpability. That you would find actually in the short stories by Poe, He's saying a lot about the society at the time.
0: I'm not sure how you could have a story where the main character's greed and actions are motivated by capitalism, basically, and the unfairness and the the cronyism, crony capitalism, and not say that clearly this is an indictment of the society and the fact that we are shooting to give a life for your kids that is unrestrained but yet this is what would happen if you actually give your kids a life that's unrestrained that shows that there is something wrong with the public morals right mhm so you don't you Yeah don't... but I
2: felt like there was more of that in a show like Succession you know like oh god how did we let these people run the mm-hmm. world and tell us what to think and I didn't get that from this show
3: No, I didn't get this from this show. And I think that many people have tried to say, like, this is a spooky succession. And this show is just not working on those, on that level. Because that show does make me think to myself, man, I'm kind of culpable in allowing this to happen and to buy the things that I buy and want the things that I want. I feel a little culpable in that. This one, not so much, you know? And I think that the filmmakers are intentionally saying to us, these people are really bad people. These people are not something that you can relate to because I think that he's really angry about the Purdue situation. I really think that's what's driving him. And since he's very angry about that, he doesn't want us to relate to them. He wants us to be angry about them and to joy whenever they meet their untimely demise or their timely demise, depending upon how you read that. And I think that that's okay. I like the show that I got.
0: It could have been better. I don't know that it could have been better having the scope of we have to have all these characters and have them all die and using different short stories. I don't think you could have had some succession level drama given that framework. Like Midnight Mass can have that because it has much more modest aims because it has fewer characters And we're really focused and very little happens to them. It's sort of just kind of one extended event that is happening to them over a period of a month or two or whatever that happens in that show. And I'm not going to spoil that show (laughs) because it is definitely. I'm also going to disagree with you. A a
3: lot happens in that show, sir. I'm sorry. A lot happens in that. It it is (laughs) one event over a, a month, but a lot. Come on, dog. Like. Sarah hasn't seen it. We're not going to spoil it for should her. Should I I'm see not spoil it? Should it. I watch it? You, you should, should, you should Mid-
0: definitely watch it.
3: Midnight Mass is really good. Matter of fact, Sarah, when you watch Midnight Mass, I want you to text me. That is, that is how good that show is. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. That show is really, really good. It is by far one of my favorite horror TV shows of all time. It is okay. really good.
0: I'll just say it takes a meditative approach to treating the psychology of the main characters such that you can see where they're coming from, you can see where they're going wrong, you can see why they make the choices they make, you can identify with them, and that's just what drama is, right? (laughs) That's why Logan Roy, all the Roys, they give you enough that even though they're despicable, you still are supposed to feel enough for them that you actually care about watching their antics for this long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And you would not care if we had you know, more about the home life of... Henry Thomas and his wife and his daughter, Lenore. It's a very barren, nobody can actually relate to each other. Nobody has real relationships, it seems. So,
2: but we got the origin story for Roderick and Madeline. Like we knew where her mother was coming from, and we were supposed to sympathize with them from the beginning when they were kids, but that absolutely did not extend to any other part of their lives. (laughs) She just seen Madeline in the 70s, just seemed like just a ball of anger, just a ball of rage, you know? That's just what she was. Thinking back on this show,
3: maybe the fact that those kids were raised in privilege, maybe we're not supposed to be sympathetic to them. Maybe we're supposed to look at them as spoiled brats and terrible human beings. And Roderick and Madeline were the only two quasi-normal ones there for a while. But the, the kids have never known a normal life. They've only had privilege. They've only had excess. And they were all kind of rotten to the core in their own individual kind of way. Maybe that was the whole point, to let us know that these people are not good people, no matter what, because of the lifestyle that they enjoy.
2: But that's a big leap to say, because you've been raised extraordinarily privileged, you're an asshole. You're just destined to be an asshole. And I
3: don't know. Isn't that the whole idea of Succession? Isn't that exactly what Succession is doing?
2: Succession is doing that, but it does it very well. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see how these, it just seems like these kids, I have no idea where these kids are coming from. And a lot of them didn't even know that Roderick was their father until later, you know, until just a few years ago. Like, wasn't Prospero, wasn't he? Just, he just learned that. Roderick was his father. I don't know how he was raised. Otherwise, he was a little shit. I mean, and he was also young too. Like that was the character I felt maybe the most sympathy for, which was just a tiny amount. He didn't even seem to get a chance to grow up at all. He just, he was barely out of teenagehood.
0: All right, let's put this one to bed. Thanks for listening. I mean, unless you guys have any final thoughts or other recommendations, I mean, we've already said Midnight Mass and stuff like that, but...
3: I would definitely recommend people watch Midnight Mass. I think that The Haunting of Hill House... I didn't love The Haunting of Bly Manor. That was a little too slow for me, too meditative. But The Haunting of Hill House is a banger. It is a really, really good show. And also, I think watching things like Crimson Peak, watching The Haunting, the 1960 film, like those kinds of things are very adjacent to what Mike Flanagan is trying to do here a very stately, haunting kind of story, gothic story that has a little bit of fun, but also something on its mind. Those are the kind of things that I would advise people to watch.
2: Yes, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad I watched Fall Out. Two horror things, Two horror things, Sarah.
3: You watched (laughs) The Exorcist and you watched this. I mean, Sarah, I'm having a little bit of an influence on you. Just a little bit.
2: (laughs) Well, I also, I'm a big Poe fan, as you know. So this was, it was fun for me to, find all the easter eggs or at least find some of them
3: well that means that you are predisposed for liking horror and you are missing out on a lot of joy in your life because you're not watching more horror films i just don't because want to you, be scared. Clearly, you clearly like horror stuff you just don't like being scared
0: i don't like being scared nope all right well let's continue on that line and trying to brainwash Sarah in the after talk if you guys have a few minutes perfect. and I have been putting the after talk on the Pretty Much Pop feed so you can hear it publicly if you are just listening to this on the partially examined live feed go actually subscribe to Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com or any of the links or just look us up on the stream service of your choice and you'll be able to hear that oh what we're about to record right now so long
1: bye, bye. goodbye
0: now we've entered the after talk. We're recording three three weeks in a row, probably this three podcast because wow. of my I'm, I'm enjoying having, trip having
3: time with you guys. I'm enjoying
2: it. This is yeah, cool. it has been fun.
0: Well, and so you what have should,
2: you guys been?
3: You should tell oh, us,
0: Lawrence, so that you are trying to get us that you you got the podcast Tomatometer Tomatoometer ap- uh, approved.
3: Okay, so what? All right, so I'm a top critic at Rotten Tomatoes. Those of you who don't know. I actually just wrote a review of the three hour and 30 minute killers of the flower moon. I really enjoyed that film. And I thought that it had something very interesting to say about the text, the Tulsa race riots, believe it or not.
2: Oh yeah. Um, Yeah.
3: Because the Tulsa race riots are happening at the exact same time as the Osage murders. So it's very interesting what the film does with that. Anyway, I wrote a review about that. Anyway, so I work, I've been working with rotten tomatoes to get our podcast tomato approved so that you guys can become official critics and be viewed by the Rotten Tomato community as like official critics with things to say. And what this does, this opens the door for you guys to get like advanced screenings to be considered an official critic. You can even get like a little lanyard made of the podcast so that when you walk into like media events, like I'm with the podcast, I'll let you in that kind of stuff. Um, and so I'm working on getting that done. I've gotten the podcast already approved. So the greases, I mean, the wheels have been greased. So all you got to do is apply for it in March It's when they open up. So when that happens, apply for it and you guys should get tomato approved. And everything you say will then be archived. So make sure (laughs) that you say good things. Keep it clean. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you can cuss or whatever, but just remember that whatever you say moving forward will be archived because you're now an official critic. Uh, So what you say will then start to carry a lot more weight.
2: We are just talking about consequences, so <laughs> and
3: this will be a consequence if yeah. Now you don't have to apply for it, but I've done the work. That all you need to do is apply for it. Okay, you, that, you'll, that's you'll, you'll, in March. You'll, you'll almost certainly get it. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah you know, I got I mean, gotta weigh, remind us? F-
0: You know, free free screeners for things, not having to go to the theater for things, versus abandoning the pretense of ironic distance between me and my judgments <laughs> about <laughs> media <laughs> that I just want to say. Well, I just want to talk about my... I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just saying this is how it made me feel. These are my
3: feelings. Now you have to actually say something. uh, People will take you seriously. (laughs) Now, you will not get screeners for everything. And like you'll get put on probably a PR list where you'll get access to them eventually. Uh, Kind of Sometimes it moves a little slow. I'll see what I can do to kind of make it happen a little bit faster for you guys. But an important step, I think that for, for us as a podcast, is to be an officially tomato respected approved podcast that adds us some legitimacy. And I think that would be really good for you guys.
2: I want to put that like as my email signature, like Sarah Lynn Breck tomato approved.
3: You, you should. I think that would be a great <laughs> idea. No, no one would know what the fuck you're talking about, but that no, would be a, one, that'd be a wonderful a idea. What?
2: Just a <laughs> little that'd be a, sliver.
3: That'd be a wonderful idea. Um, okay. So, Halloween is Tuesday. I'm so oh, yeah. excited. Are you dressing been, up, Lawrence? Oh, no. I never do nothing <laughs> like that. But I, I do watch horror movies. So every October, I watch one horror movie a day. Uh, and so I'm continuing that path. Yesterday, I watched Freddy vs. Jason. It was fun. I'm going to watch uh, Five Nights at Freddy's today. My son, my youngest son, the eight-year-old, he actually wants to watch it. He wants to go to the movie theater Oh, watch Josh
2: it. just watched that yesterday.
3: The, did he? So I, I need to um, watch it first just to make sure that it's okay for him to go to the movies and watch it. Josh um, said it's
2: appropriate for probably like 13 or 14 and up.
3: Uh, I might have to watch it just to make sure. Uh, you might. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a little protective of the baby. Uh, yeah. He's a little... He's a little impressionable. He gets scared. You know, I don't want him in the bedroom with me at nighttime. Um, but yeah, so so you guys should be watching horror stuff. I want you to watch, Sarah, you particularly, one more horror film before Halloween. It doesn't have to be a jump scare horror film, but something creepy. Come on, Sarah, do it for me.
2: I, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll watch uh, Midnight Mass.
3: Do that. Do that. That one It has a couple of jump scary-ish stuff in there, but it's so good. It's really, really good.
2: But yeah. It's Halloween. Time. Is that a Best? movie or a series? Is that a it's movie? A it's, a it's a series. It's a limited series. Oh, yeah, okay. it's a
3: series. I think it's like eight or nine episodes.
2: I did just watch the other black girl on Hulu. It's based is that on a good? book. Is that good? It was it was it was okay. I, I liked it because it's about the publishing world and there are certain conversations, current com- conversations in the publishing world about race. And it's I mean, as we all know, publishing is Lily White. And, um, and it was male dominated. It's no longer male dominated, but, um, but it was good. It was a good comment. And I thought it took, um, I thought it took some chances. It was, it was funny again, like we were talking a little bit about tone. It was kind of all over the place. Tonally sometimes it was like drifted into, you know, horror a little bit or creepiness. Mm. And sometimes it was um, very funny and and sometimes it was very smart and sometimes it was just over the top. Um, so it was kind of all over the place, but it did make me want to go and read the book that it was based on. So, which I think is probably the best thing that a show can do is made you wanna, make you want to make you want to go and read. So that's what that show did for me.
3: Speaking of shows that made me want to read books, I started watching Lessons in Chemistry, and I hate that show. It oh, do you really? I haven't started it yet. So it damn. It, it has so much potential, and it just squanders it all. I'm I'm kind of happy that we didn't cover it because I would have to say very bad things about that show. Mm. I'm not enjoying the book it. Book is really good. I do want to read the book because yeah. I can I can tell the kernel of the story there is a good story, but the way that they approached it is really not good. It, it is not a good show. I, you know, I, I wonder like if it
2: has sort of the same problems that the other black girls, that in a book there's so much nuance that you can cover maybe, that maybe. you just can't as easily on the screen.
3: Maybe um, that's what it is, but that show is not. And, and as you can see, no one's damn. talking about it. Like, no one's talking about it. And that kind of lets you know that that show, it's, it's very similar. It's like um, the morning show, when that first show first came on years ago, everyone was talking about it. Now, no one's talking about it because it's kind of fell off in quality. That's what mm. lets, lets you know that it's not really good. Same thing with Lessons in Chemistry. No one's talking. like It is completely off the radar. No one's talking about that show.
2: But um, you don't think it's because the actors can't go around and promote it? No, I don't think so. I mean, so. you don't have Brie I, Larson on Jimmy no, Kimmel? or something? No,
3: I don't think so. I think that that the cream rises to the top. And if it mm. was a good show, people would be talking about it.
2: People yeah. would just start
3: talking about it. They're just not talking about it. Yeah, it's uh, not
0: this year's Fleischman. One one thing that I've started watching with my wife is the last season of Sex Education, which I see that that actually is the final season, and that show, Mm -hmm. which is a very like the fact, it's sort of like Reservation Dogs in that it is, you know, it's about it's about teens and it's a very novel approach. It's I don't know Mm -hmm. if you guys have seen the show. It's it's kind of surreal and weird, as if everyone is obs- all all teens are obsessed with sex and obsessed with talking about sex and and uh and it's a very you know inclusive uh so it's getting into just every everything that issue that one might have <laughs> um yeah. as if isn't it still only the case that only 50% of teens have sex i don't i don't know what the i have no idea my, my kids have were it's very it's not they're not having it as college. much as
2: they did like 30 years ago. Uh huh.
0: Yeah, anyway, it's, guys a, it's
3: a weird show. Back in the 80s and the and 90s. Yeah, Gen
0: having,
3: Xers.
2: Having
3: but it's sex all the time.
0: Its yeah. cast is like, I'm surprised they even got him to do a last season. Some of them clearly grew beyond it and like are not on this last season, but enough of them, you know, that are in other, I mean, the new Doctor Who is in the show. So, yeah, he is. He is. I don't it's know. about so,
2: teenagers?
0: Yes. Mm hmm. And it has Gillian Anderson as a British person because she's lived in England a while and has a good British accent now Uh, as like an adult as like a Dr. Ruth Westheimer figure. And then her son decides that he has picked up enough that he will become a sex therapist um, for his fellow students. That is the premise. But this is season four. There was quite a big gap between three and four because of the pandemic and things.
3: I watched the first season I liked it quite a bit. I just kind of didn't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. But I liked that first season quite a bit. I really enjoyed it. It's a, it was a good show. Eh, it felt a little tame. <laughs> For, I, I mean, maybe they kind of upped it a little bit since then. But the first season felt... Because it's a show called Sex Education. I'd expect, like, fucking sex, man. You know, it's not it's, <laughs> it's not much in there. It's It, was, it felt a little a little 80s risque for me when I, the first
0: season didn't leave uh, i do not agree <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but maybe i'm a little hornier maybe that's so the much more you know presented in terms of like to the point in this last season of semen on the wall kind of you know <laughs> that kind of graphic but that's but that's,
3: that's but that's 80s risque stuff man that's like that's like weird science level stuff. That's not that. That's not that crazy.
0: <laughs> but a very you know woke version of that. It's not at mm. all. You know, I think teen sex comedies was such a weird genre. Like that, it was. It if was we could think genre. of an excuse to treat that, not that I want to go watch rewatch a bunch of that crap, but I watched, a. You know, it was like ooh, let's you know, what you tried to get. Tons of it,
3: tons Some, of it of when I was younger. Oh my yeah, gosh, I watched a
0: lot of it. Way
3: more than I should have been watching, like American Pie, like that. That was a phenomenon.
0: So that yes. was. So if there's a, if there's so American Pie was like a newer iteration yeah. of that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the Porkies in that era yeah. is the sort of the. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to say classic because they're all s- terrible. They're
3: they're, like, they're, ding, they're dingy and make you feel most nasty. Most of them and are terrible. yeah, very yeah. bad.
0: Yeah, not good at all. A a a thing that could never really be repeated because. Kids have the internet and they don't need <laughs> to see boobs on a on an R-rated movie. It's like well, a cr- lot of it was just the kind of,
2: it's so outdated. A lot of it is yeah. kind of rapey now, or you know, oh, yeah. I mean so it much really of it. really is, like,
3: is. Yeah. And like I remember watching Revenge of the Nerds and like oh, loving God. that movie. I, I, I saw that, that many movie. times. Yeah. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. That movie is terrible, So now. if there's like, if there's a modern movie really bad.
0: Yeah, if there's a modern movie that reflects back on that and it's uh, subverting it, and, you know, that's a popular thing, I think this would be a good excuse to revisit the genre.
3: Is it a genre? <laughs> is it? It is. It is. A teen,
0: teen sex comedies. Everybody's got to get laid before graduation. <laughs> <laughs> got to have sex in the library. <laughs> so, so, I mean, maybe really sex education done. actually is, but it's, it's a distant cousin of that, besides the fact that it's sober British. And none yeah, of those yeah. teen sex comedies. Maybe there's British versions of them, but I'm not. Those were not part of the canon. Of, that I, it was not private school for girls. Uh, you know, I guess there's at least things like Meatballs that were like mm. halfway but that in between was about camp, right? So it was halfway in between a sort of teen sex comedy, but also a Saturday Night Live thing. You know, one of those many Bill Murray Chevy Chase whatever kind of in that. I think it's still bad compared to caddyshack or other things of its ilk i mean yeah. listen
3: it's clear in the 80s they were doing a lot of cocaine and having a lot of sex <laughs> because that's that is what gives rise to those kind of movies: cocaine
0: and sex you think camp movies is a is a a different strain that we could pick at, those at some those national point?
2: lampooners camp movies camp movies would be fun did you guys watch um oh god i'm looking at a um a list of of teenage sex movies and Little Darlings just popped up. Do you remember that movie?
3: No, I don't think Little I've seen Darlings? I
2: don't think I saw oh, seen Oh my God. It starred Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol.
3: Mm-mm. I never saw it. Oh
2: my God. I, uh, and that was the one. And that's also, that combines teenage sex movie and summer camp. These two girls meet at summer camp. One is from the wrong side of the tracks, and the other one is like a Richie girl. And they compete to see who will first lose their virginity that summer. I mean, what could go wrong, right? Like
3: That sounds absolutely (laughs) wonderful and terrible at the same time.
2: (laughs) It was. It was both of those things. I loved that movie. With
0: a young, hot man. Did you really?
2: Wait, wait, wait. Wait wait, wait What is (laughs) that, Sarah Lynn, you loved that movie? I did. Yeah, I haven't seen it.
3: Sarah (laughs) Lynn was a horny teenager, apparently. We're learning some stuff about you, Sarah.
2: (laughs) Well, like. Oh my god, Matt Dillon putting, a young
0: I just, Matt I just Dillon a picture of Matt Dillon with a Bee Gee's haircut oh in, the, in the Oh my god. He
2: was so freaking hot. Yes. I, oh my god. What is
3: going on in this picture?
2: <laughs> oh my gosh. What is see.
3: this picture? Mark, you got to share that picture to the people I who are listening I so they can know what the hell we're oh, talking yeah. about. Oh my If you look God. up Little
0: Darlings on IMDb, you'll see that, all.
3: That hair is, is fried, dyed, and laid to the side. My God in heaven. <laughs> Goodness gracious.
2: <laughs> he was Whoa. so cute. He was
3: not cute. Oh, Sarah, I'm, <laughs> I can't with you. I can't with but you. But so we look at Tatum You're, dating, and yourself. You're dating yourself.
0: So, so the, uh, the, yeah. So the other thing, all this came Clearly. out of Sex Education. Um, I've been still working my way slowly through The Changeling, which is a show that started off so promising, and now I'm still only about halfway through it. But I'm like actively mad at it. Like I, that's, that's
3: the Apple TV show, right? Yes. Um, yeah. I, Lake, Lakeith I, I, I've been,
0: Stanfield.
2: I've been wanting to
3: watch that. I've been wanting to watch
2: that. Oh yeah, because he's a really
3: he's a really good, interesting actor, and I'm really sad to hear that that show isn't doing what it should be doing.
2: I mean, he makes some really good choices, but apparently not this one.
0: I I think just so minor spoiler, but like just as a preparation for whether you want to watch this, is it puts you through like a very realistic, dramatic kind of hell early Hmm. on. Oh. And then you're like, "Oh, but wait, was this all just a setup for some shitty fairy tale?" Like and oh, and wow. the season has yet to reveal to me whether it is a setup for a shitty fairy tale or whether the fairy tale is just, you know, the delusion of someone who has done something very terrible. So, enough said, mm-hmm. but uh, Okay. I don't know. Like I really like the mood and it <laughs> has of the first episode but then beyond that, I'm just getting angry at, it. and I wish it was a movie rather than a fucking series.
3: How, how long hmm. are the episodes? How long are the episodes?
0: Like a full hour. Okay. Oh jeez. I see it is very a- polarized with audience reviews on the internet here. Of mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people saying, "Oh, it's the best ever," and a lot of people giving it one star that they're so angry. Oh, about. It means, it means it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, unless it's a bunch of fucking racists, because it is a black yeah. story, and so is that. Oh, it's woke. One star. It's like, is that how ratings work now? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it in, sounds like yeah. In a lot,
3: in a lot of ways, that is how a lot of mm-hmm. ratings work, though.
0: It is. I didn't see if Usher has a similar. If people are like, "Oh, so woke? Why are fifty percent of the characters gay?" in yeah. Usher, that's so woke. Like, whether that is. No, Whether I don't anybody gives a that. shit about that. I don't think nobody.
2: <laughs> that was so interesting in Usher because the fall of the house of Usher is all about like, it is about bloodline and keeping the bloodline, quote unquote, pure, which meant mm. like that they were sleeping, you know, brothers and sisters were sleeping with each other and stuff. And, um, which is why the society was so sick. And I thought it was such an interesting choice that he decided to go the exact opposite that, Roderick was throwing his sperm all over the place. <laughs> he, was, he was he was definitely spreading it out.
3: <laughs> he was getting down, and and, mm-hmm. and I, if I was in that position where I knew that my kids were going to die one day, I would stop. I would at least wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, You don't have
2: to have six kids.
3: No, like th- you, there are many ways to have sex without having kids. Sex is not equal kids anymore. Not in twenty twenty three. Like no. Get down. Not even in
2: 1979.
3: <laughs> like get down, but like wrap it up. You know, make her take birth control pills. Get a vasectomy. Something.
2: Something. Yeah. Something.
3: That's why he was so evil. Like the dude was just like out there spreading his seed like it was nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. Like, were you trying to build a kingdom? What are you doing?
0: I'm I'm looking now at the same the comparable ratings of the internet that Google is giving me for fall of House of Usher. And likewise, there is a lot of five stars, maybe a third that many one stars. But more one stars than two, three or four, and so maybe this is typical of. Of course, this is going to be polarizing. It's an adaptation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's gonna. It's gonna bore some people. It's gonna strike people as too campy. It, you know, looking through the reviews, one person get commented on the wokeism or whatever, but like it didn't seem like that was the main thing. Um, it's just, what did you do with my Poe?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I could see.
0: Yeah.
2: But I think do- that don't, aren't online reviews. No matter what they are, whether it's on Goodreads or Amazon or Rate My Professor or whatever, it tends to be pretty polarized. It tends to be either I love it yeah. or I hate it.
3: Because, because yeah, why else would you comment unless you loved <laughs> it or hated <laughs> it? Right. right yeah. Exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: All the people. I was
2: meh, you know. <laughs>
0: we're going to have <laughs> okay. enforced enforced ratings where it just monitors your, your brain so that, it, so that we'll have many more. Two and three star reviews because uh, you know your your general apathy about like oh it was okay let's keep going
2: yeah <laughs> uh, that's not very interesting
0: maybe you should have to report on just how many people finish the series because that is the real measure mm-hmm. is like is if measure. this was too that boring and I stopped at episode two mm-hmm. uh, we don't get that with with films unless we had a lot of walkouts <laughs> which yeah. I guess is a fairly the rare
2: DNF did not finish. <laughs>
0: There've been plenty of <laughs> movies that I walked out on. Really, plenty that of is of that mo- is within oh your. Gosh.
2: Oh
3: really? Oh my gosh! I, I went to the movie theater to watch The Terrifier Part Two because I, I it was a it was like a phenomenon. I thought it was going to be really really good. Ten minutes in, I'm out. Couldn't take it.
0: Been I much. actually started to watch that old Hall- all Hallows Eve that you mentioned. It was on like Tubi or one one of the things with commercials, and that mm-hmm. really makes you think. Okay, now it's at a commercial. <laughs> do I do I really do care enough? Really- off-
3: do I really want to continue with it? I know. I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And I did. I, like, I there was that nothing.
0: Minute. There was nothing that was, seemed appealing about it. Like the acting yeah. was terrible. Acting's of these, not these, good. these women that not, were being. Had been captured by the clown. And they're sort of talking to each other about. Can we escape? And I just. Yeah. I found the whole thing. Cloying and stupid. Now, and.
3: Uh. I will say. That watching All Hallows Eve. I did notice the direction. The direction was quite good. And the special effects are quite good. Like. He's got something there. He's got talent, but the acting was not good at all. Um, and so, I, I can see now why this director has gone on to do bigger things and like has a much bigger. Because Terrifier two, it, it was it was a phenomenon. It made a lot of money. Um, and and they're making a Terrifier three. Like so clearly, people responded to it well. And Terrifier two was long. It's like a two hour and ten minute horror movie. That's that's unheard of. It's, it's unacceptable. But um, like the, the guy has filmmaking ability, and I'm hoping he's gotten better. But I saw the kernels of it in part in, in that All Hollows Eve. I saw what he was trying to do, and it was pretty interesting. It was pretty. Damon, it was Damien, Damien
0: Leone. This yeah, is. Let's not have Sarah watch any of this. Because
3: no, Sarah, do not watch that. <laughs> do not watch that. I approve this message. Not, I will not have you watch that. I will <laughs> no. I will stand in front of the TV to keep you from watching that. That is really bad. Please
0: All All right, well we should try to figure out at some point for some episode doing a watch party and and mm. potentially recording our real-time commentary. If you watch something I would love watch to do something like that.
3: I would love to do something let's like that. Think of <laughs> a good <laughs> a
0: good example. Uh, I am not sure like what my the ideal theater, thing theater, is. My
2: home movie theater. <laughs> let's lots do of commentary. It.
3: <laughs> like we no we should we should like get we should like watch it with like our recorders and turn it on and sync up and one two three go and watch it and talk about it let's go let's do it i
2: don't know how you can make that happen can you no, make okay. is that
3: possible I th- yeah i think there is so like if you watch it depends on what you watch but if you watch on like hulu or amazon you can sync up like so that yeah, it's a all watch party at the same time. feature watch i party. think it's on netflix yeah, too
0: that, like yeah. one oh. of them it's actually so, called that
3: there is an ability to do that, so we'll need to like schedule some time, set it up, and well, let's do it. I'm ready.
2: How do you do it and not have like the sound like of the movie get all screwed up, like we'll have, in the background and stuff?
3: I'm gonna let
0: Mark figure it out.
2: All that. Oh, I think oh. we just. Oh, good point. Good point. We
3: have that's headphones, it. and that's it. That's what it is. Mark, it was it all easier. Out. So
0: we, I did this once with Brian and Erica, but we did it when we were watching a bunch of Korean movies, and so we're reading subtitles. So it wasn't like we could talk as much as we wanted because we don't really care about hearing what they are saying. We're reading what they're saying. Right. That is, of course, an unusual situation. I've never tried that. But with that a normal worked out. Movie.
2: I would imagine, like, like That's... trying to read, like it seemed, like all that multitasking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that my, seems my, way too much. I'll <laughs> I'll say like I do not find sitting in my basement. With, uh, you know, one of the apps open on my screen with headphones on, a relaxing way to watch anything. Like, I don't want to have headphones on generally when I'm doing such a thing. And so when I do, I tend to pause a lot. And I tend to, even when watching normally, like, I, you know, I don't know how, I sometimes don't know, like, what mood was I supposed to get out of the house of Usher or something because I paused so goddamn much such that. (laughs) Did I actually let the dread seep in? I, I, in this case, I was more binging it. So, But, but I think with mm-hmm. m- a number of movies, like this is a real issue. Like, am I, am I actually getting the filmmaker's intentions when I'm not trapped in a theater?
2: Should we see Lawrence Killers of the Flower Moon in the theater? Or yes. can I wait until it comes yes. out on
0: Apple? No, no.
3: Do not wait until it comes out on Apple. And here's the reason why. If you wait till it comes out on Apple, you're going to be watching it like this. Going to be watching it with the phone or no?
2: I'll be watching it oh on no, my gigantic TV. Tr- tr- trust yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's and taking gonna, breaks to listen to me. Here is what's <laughs> going to happen:
3: You are going to be in there, and you are going to be like distracted about what's happening, or something's going to happen, or you are going to be looking around, or you are going to be talking to a person. You need to be in a film in a theater with your attention focused on the film and allowing what he's doing to wash over you because it's trying okay. to take you somewhere. I. Mm-hmm. And I have seen the movie three times in the theater because I was writing about it. Um, three
2: times in the theater? Holy I did. Moly. Yeah,
3: I did. But but I was writing about it, so the first time I watched it just to get the experience, second time I took notes, third time I watched it again to get the experience. But that was because I was writing about it, and I just published a thing about it here recently. But the, but the point is that sitting in a theater, watching it, you get so much more out of that film than if you were to sit at home and watch it. Like I'm, I'm mm-hmm. saying... It is really important to watch that film in the theater. Now, it is a big commitment. It is a three-hour and 30-minute film. It's a big commitment, yeah. but it's worth it. It is absolutely worth it.
2: I can't have any water that day. <laughs> I drink a lot of
0: water.
3: Drink water later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we've given enough to the folks. We're
3: done. All right. I'm, I'm tired <laughs> right. of talking to you people. So long. I'm done. I don't want to talk to you anymore. <laughs> Bye, so, all all right, right, everybody. My last nerves. Bye, guys. <laughs> Bye. We appreciate Bye. your sport. Bye, guys.